Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Celeste Headley. Celeste is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and best-selling author. In her 20-year career in public radio, Celeste has anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. She is the author of a new piece available on Scribd called You're Cute When You're Mad. So I said, I'm on the bus, this guy's groping me. And everybody on that bus looked out the window, or looked down at their feet, or looked at their phones. Certainly nobody stepped in, but more than that, there was a real sense of, why are you making a fuss about this woman? So I am not here to sugarcoat anything for you. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years. And quite frankly, I can tell you there's no way to downplay the serious situation that we're in as a nation. A conversation requires a balance between talking and listening, and somewhere along the way we lost that balance. I was trying to solve my own problem, which was that I was exhausted all the time and getting sick and just unhappy and overscheduled and all those things that so many people are. Hi, I'm Celeste Headley. I'm the author of You're Cute and You're Mad and Do Nothing and We Need to Talk. I'm trying to end chivalry. Sorry, not sorry. Celeste, welcome to the show. I'm very happy to have you here. And I want to start out by diving right into your cute when you're mad. You open the piece by saying that you are sexist, which I think might surprise a lot of people. What do you mean? And what prompted you to choose to open your essay which, with such a bold statement? When I started the research on it, one of the first things I did was take, um, there's two gender or sexism implicit association tests that are offered. You know, Harvard has AT tests that basically measure your unconscious bias, right? It's the only instrument that science really has to measure that. And I took both of the ones related to sexist, and I ended up with a really strong preference associating women with home and family and men with work, which is upsetting. <laughs> it's very upsetting because that is not what I believe. That's not what I fight for in my own life. I think I felt it was a surprise. And 
I opened the book that way because I thought, I'm sure I'm not the only one who would be surprised to know that we have these sexist thoughts lingering in our subconscious. In the piece, you argue for the importance of having hard discussions. Tell us why you think that's so important. The problem is that we're not really having these discussions now at all. Either we let them simmer and ignore until it becomes either a legal case or an argument, or we enter into these discussions trying to dunk on somebody or prove them wrong. And so we're not actually having the conversations. And my point is, look, we've tried it that way of arguing and fighting for a really long time. And maybe we can all acknowledge that's not working. Can we at least acknowledge that? It seems like we're more invested in yelling at each other instead of speaking with each other than I've really ever seen us. How do we get past our shoutier inclinations to have these productive conversations that need to be had? I don't know what your experience is like. You know, I follow you on a lot of social media and I know that you get targeted with a lot of nastiness on social media. But then when you meet people in person, it's generally a different situation. And so that's how we get past it, is we stop having the conversations anonymously and on social media and at a distance. We just leave that alone and make sure that if we're going to have these conversations at all, it's in a place where we have at least the possibility for success and mutual respect. You write that the World Economic Forum predicts gender equity won't happen for another century. And so you're taking on new tactics to accelerate that timeline. Tell us more about them. There's a few things. The first thing is I want people to get used to using micro-interventions. Most people at this point would know what a microaggression is, right? Here, honey, let me get that for you. Your handwriting is so great. Why don't you take the notes in all the meetings? We know what these sexist microaggressions are. And I want us to approach these through micro-interventions, meaning that when somebody says something that's not blatantly sexist, that's not damaging to my career or my well-being, I can use a small confrontation that's not even really a confrontation to address it. So I'm trying to teach people a system, and I teach the STAR system, which is stop, tell, assist, restore. So let's say that somebody has just said, wow, you've got great legs. It's so nice to see a pretty woman around the office. Okay, the first thing I'm going to do is stop. Even if I'm not the target of that comment, I'm just going to stop it. In fact, I'm going to try to intervene before they even finish the sentence. And all that stop has to be is something like, whoa, or hold on, or hey, does not have to be intellectual. Then you're going to tell. And what you're doing is you're just telling them you don't agree with what they just said. It's that simple. Hey, I don't, I don't feel good about what you just said. The next thing is you're going to assist them. And it's really important to frame it as assistance because you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they didn't mean to be offensive with that comment. And you're going to assist them by saying that can really be interpreted as leaning into a stereotype that ends up hurting women. And then you're going to restore, which is going to restore their humanity. In other words, you're going to say, you know, I'm sure you didn't mean that to be offensive or hurt my feelings in any way. That's why I wanted to point it out. So all the way through, that takes less than 30 seconds. Hold on. I don't appreciate what you just said. The statement that you made really leans into a destructive stereotype for women. I know you didn't. I'm sure you didn't mean that to offend me. That's why I'm pointing it out. That's it. And then you let it go. Let's move on with the meeting or whatever. You don't have to turn it into a broader conversation. You don't raise that person's defensiveness 
by saying, whoa, you sexist pig. (laughs) What kind of person says that? And that's how these tiny little interventions that'll help us to start make progress. I think the big question is, how do we get more men to come to the table as just honest and good faith participants in this process? You've hit the nail on the head. That's really should be the goal of all this. And if for no other reason than that research shows men are more likely to be believed when they say, hey, that was sexist joke. We found some fascinating results in our studies, and that is that women... Um, we're not effective at persuading men when it came to gender-related issues. We call it the peanuts effect, the cartoon. And that is when men hear women talking about gender issues, what they really hear is wah, 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 wah. And so what we found is if we really want to influence men, what we need to do is engage men in talking about gender-related issues. So male allies, not surprisingly, they're the power holders of society. We need to include them and we need to make sure we're utilizing them. Men are more likely to be rewarded when they stand up for disadvantaged groups, whereas women and people of color are punished when they stand up, either for themselves or for others. Men really have a lot of power, and I hope they can see that as a good thing. I'm sure a lot of men don't like sexism and they want to have a fair and equitable society. And look, you have the power to change it. You white dude, (laughs) you can really move the needle. And in fact, it won't get done without the you white dude. Exactly. Exactly so. My whole point in this book was to sort of give people the tools, not just to say, here's why it's awful and here's why it should change, but to say, okay, so you want to change it. Here, step-by-step, is how you do that. And talk to us about friendly or benevolent sexism. Yeah, we know it when we see it. Sadly, I hate to say it, but it's chivalry too. Benevolent or friendly sexism is that sexism that's often couched as a compliment. And so that's one of the things that makes it so difficult to let go of. I know that it's great when somebody opens the door for you, and there's nothing wrong with opening a door for a woman as long as you're not only opening doors for women. That's when it becomes sexist. Chivalry is is benevolent sexism. It's this, I'm going to protect this woman because she's weak. And if you go back to the chivalric code, it doesn't even mention women. It just says, a good knight protects the weak. I recently posted a tweet asking men to stop telling boys to take care of their mothers when the husband leaves the house because it just makes it seem like we need help, that we can't do it on our own. And what does that, what is it instilling in the child? Am I not safe? And boy, let me tell you, people lost their minds just from this tweet. And it's interesting because the things that I put out there that I think are the least controversial seem to cause such a stir and it becomes like an awakening for me because I just assume everyone has gotten to this point already. Have we not realized 
that when you say to a little boy, take care of your mother while I'm gone, it is teaching them that their mother cannot take care of themselves or that a woman cannot take care of themselves and you. And we are starting off from that place. And I'm wondering, how do you think that we should confront this kind of benevolent sexism? So one of the main things that we have to do at all times is give people the benefit of the doubt. You asked me why I started the book the way that I did by admitting that I'm sexist. And part of that is because we all have to enter into these conversations, understanding that those biases live in us too. So most of us will not generally admit that we are prejudiced in any way. We think, I'm a good person, and good people aren't prejudiced. But the fact remains, every single person in this room and beyond holds implicit biases or different ideals, attitudes, and stereotypes that affect our understanding completely unconsciously in both positive and negative ways. Often, our declared beliefs don't reflect our implicit biases. Dostoevsky wrote, there are things which a man is afraid to admit even to himself, and every decent man has a number of such things stored away in his mind. So when we have these conversations, it's not so much of you're a horrible person. It's like, yeah, we're all subject to this. It's everywhere. We've all grown up watching the Brady Bunch, and this is where we live. It's not you. It's us. So let me point this out to you because I'm going to help you. I try to get people to think of it. If somebody pronounces a word really badly and you're helping them out because you don't want them to do it again, because it might people might think they're dumb or something because they're mispronouncing this. So you're like, let me help you out. It's not pronounced that way. But it is controversial to some people. I mean, you can look at some of the reactions over the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing. And I posted a thing saying, look, Jada Pinkett Smith doesn't need her husband defending her from words. One of my biggest problems here is the sexism that's implanted in this idea that a woman needs a husband to stand up and punch somebody else because he said something that was possibly disparaging or upsetting in any way. Jada Pinkett Smith is a strong woman. And it's the same idea of chivalry, this protecting the weak. And so when you're having this conversation, A, you want to make it about us and not you. B, you want to keep it as personal as possible. In other words, don't talk about women in general. Talk about you or the woman you care about or an incident you have actually seen or been part of. When you start talking about generalities, that's when it starts to escalate into arguments over ideas and principles. And I heard this from my second cousin's friend's brother. That's when it it gets uncontrollable. You need to keep it down to the one-on-one. Yeah, and a connection and personal, right? I think anytime you make something personal, you can latch on to the humanity of it about chivalry, which we've mentioned many times and how it fits into this. And you make a great example of holding doors in your essay that I think is really something our listeners can latch on to. Will you just explain that? You know, again, like when you go back to the chivalric code, the whole idea of holding doors for a woman was to assist a woman who couldn't get the door for herself. And The problem isn't that I don't want a door held for me. Absolutely, if it's the case that I'm carrying a bunch of boxes and you open the door for me, I'm going to say thank you and appreciate that. But I'm going to do that even if it's a 12-year-old girl or a 70-year-old man or regardless of who opens that door for me, that's just them being compassionate to another human being. If someone opens the door and says, let me get that for you, sweetheart, They're opening the door out of this long tradition of protecting the weak. I have to keep saying that over and over. That's where this started. And I'm not weak. 
and my gender doesn't make me weak. So hold the door, absolutely hold the door for everybody, for everyone. Yeah, I'm sure you've had this also, but I was a reporter and a correspondent for a very long time and our packs that we use are really heavy. They're like 40 pounds. We have a lot of mic cables in there. This equipment is heavy. And we'd always have like bags and bags of batteries. And over and over, men were like 70 year old men were stepping up to me when I was in my 30s and saying, Oh, let me get for you, hun. And I'm like, Get the camera, dude, who's got four suitcases worth of stuff. Don't ask me to get my backpack. I want to shift gears just for a minute and talk about some of your other work. You wrote a book called Do Nothing How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. And boy, does that resonate with me? Tell us about this sorcery. Yeah. So I imagine with all the different things that you do, you have a lot of plates in the air at any one time. That book came because I was trying to solve my own problem. I reached a point in my life and I thought when you became more successful and I finally had some kind of financial stability, I thought that's when I would work less. That's when I wouldn't have to hustle so hard and I would take vacations and I'd learn flamenco dancing and... how to speak Portuguese or something. But it just turns out that you just can't, your schedule gets more packed and the gigs become more difficult to turn down and more difficult to say no to. And I ended up, I started getting sick a lot and I rarely get sick. I was irritable with my family. I never had time for anything. And I was like, this is insane. This is, I've quit my job. I'm self-employed. I shouldn't be here. Like many of you out there, I have a full-time job. This And generally, I put in 40 hours a week or a lot more. But new research out of Australia suggests that I may be putting my health at risk. The study published in the journal Social Science and Medicine sampled roughly 3,800 men and 4,000 women to get an idea of how working for a long time would affect their health. They found, on average, working more than 39 hours per week led to a decline in mental health. I feel like also, too, I don't know if you felt like this, but I feel like as women, we're having a real moment as far as in the workplace. So then it turned into, for me, like, I have to take advantage of this moment. I have to keep working because this is our moment. This is our moment to prove that we can do this. And so I think that there becomes even like this innate sexism, even in that cycle of it just being so hard to say no right now because women are having this moment. Totally agree with that. This is a yes and thing where, yes, that's true. And even our sisters are putting this pressure on us. I don't want to put too much on uh, Lean In, that book, but I wrote a chapter in that book, Do Nothing, is about the difference in burnout between men and women. Are women more overworked? The answer is yes, we're more overworked. And the last sentence of that chapter is Lean Out, ladies, because This idea that we have to earn our place in the workplace, that we have to earn equity and fair pay, and we have to somehow prove that we're worth equal rights, that's crap. It's never worked for any group. And it doesn't mean that we have to or should have to work harder to achieve that. Yeah. Life is what it actually does mean. Why is it so hard for us to put work down. Most of the people that I know, especially during the pandemic, when lots of people have been working at home, get up and they're at work and they go to bed. And guess what? They're still at work. 
It's really important what you're just talking about. It's this phenomenon where we're not working from home, we're living at work. So it's a complicated question, though. It's the one that I set out to answer when I was doing the research for that book was why do I feel guilty when I sit on the couch and I only watch a movie instead of checking my email and tweeting something? Why does it feel bad if I like sit down and read a novel more than a chapter at a time? I feel bad about myself. My therapist very astutely said to me, he's like, I feel like you're letting people down when you're just taking care of yourself. And so I said to my seven-year-old, I was like, when mommy rests and I lay down for a little bit, does it feel like I'm letting you down? And she said, no, mommy, you have to rest. That's how you recharge your brain. Oh, go smart. And I was like, oh, I'm glad that she is actually being raised with that kind of mentality because hopefully when she's 32 and expected to work 16 hours to to still not make as much as her male counterpart, maybe she has a little bit more of a secure foundation just about how important it is to just to just rest. What does this addiction to work say about all of us? Yeah, so I thought the cause of it would probably be technology. That's what I was expecting to find out but it isn't. It actually dates all the way back to the Industrial Revolution and the moment at which a few things happened. Things like factory lines meant that it disempowered workers. There was no longer an artisan that sculpted staircases. There was a factory that issued them. So the worker who made staircases didn't need his tools anymore. He just went and worked for somebody else, which meant his artistry and all of that craft didn't matter. It just mattered how many could he pumped out over the hour. In other words, for the first time in human history, time became money. That wasn't true ever before. Another thing was that a lot of women were small business owners before the Industrial Revolution. They made fabric. They made all kinds of different things. They had their own businesses, and they all lost their businesses when factories came in, because of course you weren't going to have a woman factory owner. How ridiculous. We began to move into cities. We lost our plots of land. But the other part of this was, is that employers actually started to steal our time. And I mean that literally in that some early employers would literally change the time on the clocks to trick their employees to working longer. And they have been stealing our time ever since. And when they found out, you know, there was this huge battle to create the eight-hour workday. The first country that established it was actually in South America. And eventually, globally, we accepted that the workday, a reasonable workday, was eight hours a day. When that realization happened among capitalists and they knew they weren't going to win that fight anymore, they went about it a different way and they started using some of the mind techniques that had been learned during the Second World War to subconsciously make us feel bad about not working. They would print posters. They would insert their message into movies that were made. They would support authors into writing these studies, like the Horatio Alger books. And you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? So they say lunch breaks may be more like desk breaks. That's according to a new survey that says more than half of American workers feel guilty about stepping out to eat for 30 minutes to an hour for the one thing that you need to do to keep you alive, which is eat. The survey of 2,000 workers commissioned by England's Best found that intense workloads or the pressure to finish projects is leading more employees to stay put during the workday. Is that you? Well, 51% admit it's rare for them to take a full lunch break, and 3 in 10 folks say they wind up eating at their desk most of the time. There was this concerted effort 
to convince workers that idle time makes you a bad person. It makes you undeserving. It makes you lazy. And that if you are a good churchgoer, idle hands of the devil's playground, if you are a, a good American, if you are a good person in general, you are working hard and you're working hard every moment of the day. And otherwise, you don't deserve anything. No help. And think about how much that message has seeped into everything that we do, just our churches, but also how we approach, say, welfare, how we approach social, uh, our whole entire social net and whether we help people or not when they have trouble. We don't, because if they're not working as hard as they possibly can, they don't deserve it. Most of my listeners will know you from your long and incredibly profound and prominent career in public radio. In 2021, you wrote a piece on Medium that called for an anti-racist future for public media, specifically noting white supremacist culture and anti-blackness shape the policies, norms, and standards of public radio. How was that received? in the public radio world? It was mixed. There were a number of people who wrote me private messages saying that they supported the work. We'd had a lot of people sign on. Some of them were large stations like WNYC, but it's slow. When I say that it's a white supremacist culture in public media, public media supports itself largely through donations. And for a long time, that has meant that the older white citizens of the country were their main foundation of sustaining support. And so that's where all of the content and even the news choices and decisions have been aimed at, is their core audience. And that's still the underlying assumptions in everything that happens in public media, most things that happen in public media. So when you ask me how it was received, the principles themselves, the ideas behind it, everyone said, yeah, we all agree with that. But beneath that, in that letter, were very specific steps on here's what you do to change it. That part was not as well received. And I got a call from a very large organization asking me to remove the part on objectivity. There's a part in which we say, let's stop talking about objectivity. That's part of white supremacy. And they called and said, we can't support this letter until you take that out. How'd that go over? I just said, I appreciate your opinion. It's remaining. <laughs> it's staying in there. <laughs> I work at Open News where we are supporting a movement in journalism, one that is fighting for a future where all journalists can work in newsrooms that are anti-racist, equitable, inclusive, and collaborative, and where the communities that we've long ignored can trust in journalism again. Well, maybe for the first time ever. To your point, in 1968 and again in 1978, reports noted that news media and public media were not serving Black listeners. So are we still at that point? What has changed? What still needs to change? Yes, we're still at that point. I think public radio has for a long time 
given lip service to diversity efforts. I think that over the past few years, that lip service has become the honest effort to change. It's just, this is a legacy media, right? And in some cases in the news business, it's even harder to change because everything's your gut. When you talk about news instinct, oh, he's got a great news instinct. What you're really talking about is gut instinct and gut instinct is bias. And so in the media, when you're talking about, well, this is the way this is done. This is the way we do this. This is the way a news story sounds. This is what a news voice sounds like. What we're really talking about is these gut instincts about the way things have always been done and the way they've always been done filtered around this idea of the hyper-educated, elite, white, Northeastern person. So that's still there. From all of your time in public media, is there a moment which sticks out for you? Was there something magical that happened or terrifying or so powerful that it still is with you? For public media, that's always the listeners. People who listen to public radio usually only listen to public radio. And Audie Cornish, my friend Audie Cornish, who used to host All Things Considered, when she gave speeches, she would start them by saying, I know you don't look like I expected either. And people develop a relationship with you. And I remember I was hosting Morning Edition from Arizona and I had a cold and I was for several days working through the news and reading it and sounding like this, snorting and I needed to blow my nose. And somebody sent me like six cans of Campbell's chicken noodle soup. (laughs) It showed up at the radio station. I mean, you develop this relationship with the listeners and they respond. And that's the best part. I mean, you must have that connection with a lot of your listeners too, right? For sure. And people that I meet in person. There's something about being invited into people's worlds for either entertainment purposes or to get your news from. It is a special kind of relationship. What gives you hope? The younger generations, I really like how intolerant they are of bullshit. You know, my son is Gen Z, and I know a lot of Gen Z people. I'm Gen X, so... I love how they don't want to put up with any crap. All of the stuff that we sort of like put our heads down and we're like, this is how it's done. Don't make waves. Do what you're supposed to do. And Gen Z is, fuck this. No, this is bullshit. I'm not talking every single member of generations, but I'm talking about specific people that I see just standing up and saying, I'm not going to put up with this. I got to tell you, some of the biggest fans of that book, Do Nothing, the ones who are absolutely buying into the idea that hard work doesn't make you a good person are younger people. And I'm like cheering them on. Absolutely. Go for it. I mean, Gen X gets forgotten all the time. We're this tiny generation that everyone just talks about millennials or boomers, but it gives me hope that younger people are questioning things and not cynical, but skeptical of the things they're being told. Hopefully they don't feel just being skeptical and looking at everything is enough. Like they need to get in there and change things. You could be fed up, but we have to create change. Celeste Tedley, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I would really like to show us the way to hope. And I'd like to show us the way forward. But to do that, we have to understand how we got here. 
If you're feeling pretty good about your own choices, maybe deploring the behavior of other people, you're maybe blaming all of this on the other side, whatever side that is, you might have missed the point. We hate each other because we don't know each other. We don't see each other as worthy of respect. Confronting sexism is hard. Hearing we need to confront it is especially hard for men. Take a look at any social media post where I or other women say so, and you'll see what I mean. But that's not a reason not to do it. When did we become afraid of doing hard things, of living up to the lessons of generosity and community and kindness that are supposedly installed in us from a very young age? As Celeste says in her new Scribd piece, we can foster equality and inclusivity in our communities if we are aware of the scope of the challenge and speak frankly in our discussions. In order to speak frankly, we have to listen openly. When we listen from a position of privilege, the most important thing we can do is to overcome the instinct to react, to say not all men or not all actors or not all white people, to exclude ourselves from the class which creates the problems. That's not listening. And it's not going to solve anything. Despite it all, despite the hate women receive, the overt sexism, and the internalized misogyny, I believe most of us are good people who want this problem to be fixed. I really do. So let's have the conversations. Let's live up to our ideals. I know we can do it. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry. <laughs>